Welcome to the Asian Education Podcast. This is a forum for discussing research on education and related social issues in Asian contexts. And it also seeks to provide Asian perspectives on global debates over educational policy and practice. And this podcast is produced by the UNESCO Chair on Education for Peace, Social Justice and Global Citizenship at Kyushu University in Japan, in association with the Comparative Education Society of Asia. And a special welcome today, uh, because this is our very first podcast introducing this series. So I want to begin by welcoming Yoko Mochizuki and Gairan Pame, who are co-hosting this episode with me. I'll start very briefly by introducing myself, perhaps. So I'm Edward Vickers. I'm Professor of Comparative Education at um, Kyushu University and holder of the UNESCO chair that I just mentioned. I'm also sitting here wearing my presidential sash as current president of the Comparative Education Society of Asia. Although I should emphasize that anything I say on this podcast, I say in a personal rather than a presidential capacity. So... Gairan, would you like to briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Professor Vickers. For oh, Ed, me. please. Okay, good evening. Uh, so I'm Gairan. I am currently a PhD candidate in the Department of Psychology in Chinese University of Hong Kong. And before that, I was in New Delhi. And my background, professional background, is in psychology and education. So as the youngest co-host, youngest professionally and chronologically, I am very excited and happy to be here. Perhaps we should explain so that the thread, the golden thread that links the three of us is the Mahatma Gandhi Institute in New Delhi, where Gairan used to work and also Yoko used to work. We'll be saying a lot more about the Mahatma Gandhi Institute at some point, but um, not right now. Anyway, Yoko, would you like to briefly introduce yourself? Yes, hi, Ed. Very happy to be here. I am Yoko Mochizuki. I was formerly a head of policy at uh, UNESCO's Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development based in Delhi, India. Now I'm an independent scholar based in Paris, France. Thank you. Great. Well, I want to start by discussing, well, what is the rationale for having an Asian education podcast? I mean, what is the point of having a podcast like this that um, discusses education primarily from an Asian perspective? Pame, would you like to <laughs> comment on that? Yeah, so uh, it was your grand idea. And I am very privileged and honored to be invited to give a take on it. Usually we say that these, the literature or the research is to anglophone and we need to decolonize it. But I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with that. So it might be seen that we're sort of setting up our standard in Asia to challenge the hegemony of Eurocentric or Western-centric perspectives on education that's one way of looking at it but not necessarily the not position necessarily that we would so, take so yeah so that's my take for now that we don't necessarily need to be countering anything to have a say 
Mm. I'm, I mean, it, it should be said, of course, that the idea of Asia is itself somewhat arbitrary, right? I mean, most most categories are arbitrary. Indeed, but also essential. Well, yes, yes, exactly. We had um, a chapter with my co-advisor, with my advisor, co-advisor, and a colleague on dyslexia in Asia in a book by Routledge last year. So it was published. And the chapter is titled Dyslexia in Asia. So I guess that's a right. So we not we might not necessarily think that there are there is anything sort of distinctively Asian about the experience of dyslexia. But we're so used to using this category that um, it's possible to publish a chapter with that title. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, however we define Asia in terms of economic clout, in terms of population, I mean, in terms of population, it accounts, I think, for about yeah. half the human population of the world, mm -hmm. uh, if not more. So, you know, we're dealing with a region, if we can call it that, which really should be central to global debate about pretty much anything, not just education. But I think it's fair to say, and here I think we can agree with the the decolonialists, <laughs> that education, that Asia um, or, or Asian perspectives uh, on education or anything else generally don't get the airing that they should have in global debates, that debates still tend to be centred in or largely shaped by scholars, actors, institutions. I, I don't mean Hollywood actors. I mean um, <laughs> people from various fields of activity or institutions that are based in the West. So, well, if we accept that there's a case for doing that, uh, what makes us the people to do it? And perhaps at this point, it, it's appropriate for me to um, indulge in a little self-criticism. You know, who am I to speak for Asia? English Ed. Um, well, identity is a complicated thing. And uh, for one thing, I think we would perhaps, or certainly I would question... <laughs> the um the claim that one's identity or sort of origins pedigree uh determines one's entitlement to speak about anything i think that's a dangerous line of argument to to take but were we to take that line of argument as it happens i i have spent most of my adult life in asia i carry a british passport but I'm also a Hong Kong permanent resident and a permanent resident of Japan now with a Japanese family as well as a Japanese job. <laughs> so although, um, and let's put this out there, there are some of my critics in the academic community who have challenged me on the basis of my positionality and accused me in, in, indeed of being a, trying to set myself up as some sort of viceroy to speak for Asia. Um, right, so um, uh, Gairan and Yoko are going to refer to me as Viceroy, but I should stress that I will remain acutely conscious of my position, positionality and um, 
uh, white privilege throughout. Yoko, would you like to tell us a little bit more about your background? Um, so I worked with UNESCO about 11 years. Uh, for the first four years at the headquarters in Paris, and then about seven years in New Delhi. And um, I think it was very interesting, both in Paris and, uh, and in New Delhi. The fact that I was, I'm Japanese uh, was uh, quite important in terms of uh, people's perceptions of me. Uh, so, you know, especially in the international organizations, uh, people have certain ideas about different nationalities and precisely because I'm Japanese, uh, people just assume that I am very organized or I'm very quiet or I'm very precise or, you know, I've always, uh, Sorry. Well, I'm looking at your flat behind you on the screen now, and it does look very tidy from where I'm sitting. Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah, sure Barry just... Kondo would approve. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's the, you know, like sort of... That's the stereotype, same. though. That's, that's Yeah, of yes. course. And... Um... But, you know, I, I actually, I'm not a very typical Japanese, like my Japanese, <laughs> my uh, friends or uh, family or colleagues in Japan, they think I'm very untypical as a Japanese. But, you know, in the international environment, I'm like so typically Japanese. So I always found it fascinating. And... Uh, mm, and, you know, like, uh, I think uh, here's a, like a gender dimension, but mm. uh, East Asian women look deceptively young. So, you know, people have no idea how old I am. And, you know, so they treat me in a certain way in certain contexts because they assume that I'm a certain age. Like, for example, in India, I was often treated like an intern when I went to the government events because they just assume that, you know, I'm not wearing a sari and, you know, I don't look like a program head. Um, so, um, and then, you know, it, the people's perceptions give way to what you say. And, you know, also I don't have like very authoritative voice or look or attitude. Mm. <laughs> Um, so that allows people to take me very lightly uh, in many settings. And I'm, you know, used to it. So I'm like completely fine with it, but it's a very good way for me to understand and <laughs> observe and evaluate people, you know, because uh, I'm like a living stereotype and... Uh, <laughs> And then, but you know, like uh, what's going on in my mind or, you know, what I'm thinking, um, they don't really conform to what uh, people expect me to think or behave. So, and it's always, um, 
I think it's uh, things are very different. If I'm like the, you know like viceroy, I'm a Caucasian guy um, mm. with uh, like a very uh, you know fantastic voice, authentic, authoritative voice. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about like literally your voice. <laughs> getting a bit personal yeah yeah but yeah yeah, i'm sorry i kind of deviated no no Uh, but 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 uh i mean i think this is very important and what you're saying does reflect you know issues that asian women face yes exactly Um, yes uh you know, both within Asia in very mm-hmm. male, what are very male-dominated societies mm-hmm. by and large, uh, but also internationally uh, mm-hmm. in organisations which are by and large male-dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you're saying about my voice, I mean, mm-hmm. yes, I mean, having a, a voice like mine is perhaps part of my, you know, white male privilege because uh i'm able to sort of or or i've experienced this you know being able to sort of command attention i mean it's partly an issue of volume i suppose um but it is also um an issue of how you are perceived uh not least in asia uh as a, a a white man uh, you know, it's often something that is is quite uncomfortable. I mean, there are ways in which um, Europeans like myself, and, and especially men, mm-hmm. uh, do command a lot of attention and a lot of privilege um, as we sort of swan around Asia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. While and at I the same it... time also being <laughs> sort of othered or... Yeah, in some ways discriminated against. Although, in you know, by comparison with the discrimination that many people face, it's it's you know, it's a very gentle um, form of discrimination that we experience. That's that's that basically involves sort of putting us in a box. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking yeah. about being stereotyped yeah. as an Asian woman. Mm-hmm. You get stereotyped as a European or Western man, mm-hmm. uh, yes. and that often diminishes the attention. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, or the seriousness with which many in Asia will sort of regard what I have to say as well. But, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. it's enormous privilege. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the important thing is to acknowledge that we are highly aware of our own positionalities in doing this podcast. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> yes uh and and um you know there's there's more to say and we will be saying more about uh, yes yeah one more thing yeah yes uh i also wanted to say one more thing because yeah you know uh i can do this kind of work and i have worked in the international organization precisely because i speak english mm-hmm. and you know that's a huge privilege uh to have and I think it's changing now, but you know, in my time, not many people could work in English. Mm. So that, uh, and then it allows me to speak to a wider audience about Japan or about Asia. And you know, and a lot of international forums, uh, all the experts they speak English. And one of the problem is that 
um, like a Japanese experts uh, to attend international meetings. Uh, they are selected based on their English competencies. So, you know, they are not like very old. They are not necessarily the uh, experts on the substance that is being discussed. So, you know, we can come back or, to that. Or necessarily the most authentically Japanese voices. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's a very important point. Um, yeah, and and the whole issue of English as the sort of you know currency of academic exchange mm -hmm. in Asia and beyond is is also something that I think you know we'll need to pay serious attention to and and perhaps devote an episode to at some point. Um, because it's it's inescapable, but uh, you know, as with our positionality, it's something that we need to be sort of mm -hmm. conscious of. Sorry, um, Iran. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a perfect segue for what I want to add on to that point, because India is an entirely different. At least the higher education in big Indian cities is very different from the rest of Asia. At least in terms of the big city social science and humanities education because it's all in English. And uh, for sure, you you will have certain privileges and mileage if you speak better English than the rest, but uh, it's more common than elsewhere, for example, to Japan or China maybe, where you don't necessarily need to be educated in English to access higher education because I've been in, in Delhi my whole adult life, my entire education and everything was in English. Mm. And so there was no special status accorded to it as such. It is great if you can exploit that for yourself, but uh, uh, it's more common than, and you would see that, you know, Indian academics professors are extremely articulate they can wax poetics better than so-called native speakers well precisely i mean the, the politics of english in south asia is very different from the politics yeah. of english here in east asia uh yeah. in a society like japan yeah. um you know where english is very you know it's very clearly a foreign language yeah. uh, in japan and, and it's um uh it's not essential really mm. getting on within Japanese society within the labor market mm. whereas in India it is I mean in in India English is not a sort of divide between India and the outside world in English is a divide within Indian society between yeah. English-speaking elites mm. and the rest isn't it yeah I want to sort of move on to the question of uh what we feel some of the um, difficulties are in having a critical debate about education in 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 Asia, um, uh, and this really comes back to the question of you know what the point is in having a podcast like this that um, tries especially to present Asian perspectives uh, on educational issues uh, uh, and to do so critically uh that's the key word um why is that often quite difficult to do here in asia who wants to go first 
Should I continue or you can please, please, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, that's great. And someday I would like to be able to work on it formally. That the education as a question is something I've been thinking about for a long time. And my MPhil was in educational studies in Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi, and it was one of the best formal education I've received because they call it the social science training in education. So you had to take classes in history, philosophy of science, sociology of education, economics of education, and my major in psychology. So I think it was one of the rare opportunities for young scholars like me who are interested in this question to have a relatively broad, at least orientation or, or initiation into this debate before you jump right from undergrad to I want to do a PhD in psychology or in education. Mm. And then we all know that education as a topic today has been quote unquote dominated by the RCTs loving economists, the randomized control trials uh, brigade of education research. Know, the Nobel Prize winning team. Mm -hmm. and, uh, well, yeah. So, Garan, you you studied undergrad at Jawaharlal Nehru. No, I I did my undergrad in University of Delhi. Right, but and then you did a master's in Jawaharlal Nehru University, yeah, I got which is well known in India for being quite a sort of politically radical place, uh, or I used to be. Think so, or yeah. I, I would think so. It was a great. At least for me, the classes I took, they really shaped my thinking, or at least in terms of what I don't want to do. Mm. So to, to study education or to study educational issues in a place like Jawaharlal Nehru University, I imagine involved um, you know, some quite critical and perhaps some quite politically charged discussions. Yeah, that was. But do you think that's typical of the way that education is discussed in India? Not at all, or probably not in most places in the world, if I may say so. So it was more of an outlier education mm. or training than is the norm. So I mean, if if you uh, talk to people in educational studies in many Asian universities or if you attend conferences on education around Asia uh, you will find I think an overwhelming focus on quite narrowly technical issues um, you know so perhaps we should say that if anyone's listening to this podcast expecting a sort of how-to guide to school improvement then you know you're listening to the wrong podcast um, because we're uh, looking to focus far more on uh, the political, social and cultural context in which education operates and, and you know, how that context shapes and is shaped by education systems. But those sorts of issues are the sorts of issues that generally do not get uh, much discussed or researched or talked about um, in uh, faculties of education across Asia, in Asian universities, um, in the media discussion of education, or in the political discussion of education. Do they?
How about Japan? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I did my PhD at, uh, in New York uh, at Columbia University. And those who are in comparative and international education would know who Gita Steiner Kamsi is. So she, uh, Gita was my advisor. So, you know, in comparative ed uh, education, uh, there's a very strong tradition of looking at the context within which education uh, is embedded. So, um, and also, um, there's a strong tradition of looking at the global governance of education. So I was interested in these questions. Uh, and I was not at all interested in like education interventions, you know, effectiveness of certain educational interventions. And uh, we really uh, problematized like in my studies uh, in, in the graduate school, uh, how, you know, these like best practices are constructed and, you know, how they, uh, how they travel around the world, even those uh, interventions that do not work, uh, how do they travel and you know, so on and so forth. So until um, I joined the United Nations, I really, uh, weren't looking at that type of question, you know, what kind of interventions uh, do we need? You know, do we need to implement, you know, what's what the evidence? Works. What works? Yeah, so implementing what works, that was like the question I wasn't very interested in. And initially, because I was uh, always working on uh, education for sustainable development, which is, um, you know, global movement to reorient uh, the purpose of education towards uh, peace, sustainability, and like global justice. You know, that's the, uh, the, it was a big movement to rethink the purpose of education. So uh, initially it was very, like, you know, very relevant to what I studied and uh, very close to my passion, but this movement, ESD, has uh, increasingly become more technical and instrumentalized as well because uh, you know people started talking about uh, you know it's you know we have to move from words to action you know it's we don't have to talk about uh, what ESD is because we spend a lot of time trying to define what it entails especially in the uh, during the United Nations decade of education for sustainable development uh, between 2005 and 2014. And then, of course, in 2015, the sustainable development goals were formulated. And then uh, ESD was mentioned in the so-called SDG target 4.7. Mm. So, you know, uh, people in the community in the ESD community were very excited that, you know, oh no, it's in the global agenda so we can promote it. But I think uh, this really uh, shifted the focus of ESD from looking at the purpose of education to, you know, like what works. Uh, well, and also there, there was a process by which 
and and, and this happened with mm -hmm. education for sustainable development esd mm -hmm. uh it, it's happened with many aspects of the educational mm -hmm. agenda whereby um you know the agenda gets sort of captured by quantitatively mm -hmm. trained economists um and by institutions such as the OECD or in, indeed the OECD in particular mm -hmm. um which uh has made it its business to sort of develop metrics for any and all aspects of education mm -hmm. um and and you know what this often leads to and this is something we're, again that we'll have to come back to in future episodes mm -hmm. you know what yes. this yes. fuels is a sort of narrowing uh of educational debate uh, a reduction of educational debate to a sort of very technocratic uh level um that that doesn't take proper account of uh context or politics ethics <laughs> um the complexities of um the way in which various social factors influence education system one of our episodes will be titled what works yeah we should do <laughs> uh well what works the what works discourse hmm. yeah what's wrong with what works let's maybe. just take it as a norm now so every other week whenever we have seminars here i'm only i'm always saying i'm not interested in interventions and that almost sounds like blasphemy if you say that. Well, uh, that is perhaps an interesting or telling indicator of the way things are moving in Hong Kong. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, but this this relates to one of the difficulties of having the kind of critical discussion <laughs> that we want to have on this podcast mm -hmm. is that just by saying that, I'm putting Gairan in a difficult position. Yeah? Yeah, and also because... You know, I'm still a junior scholar. Mm. And I want to claim that I'm keeping an open mind mm. and continually mm. revisiting and reevaluating my own stances. Yeah, but you're and, doing your PhD in Hong Kong in 2023. Yes. I did my PhD in Hong Kong in 1997 or 1997 <laughs> to 2000, you know, where I and, and I was researching, you know, you know, a highly politically sensitive topic uh the politics of um history education in um colonial and post-colonial hong kong and even and who then was you, sorry who was sorry, your advisor my advisor was paul morris who we'll be hearing from very soon in a subsequent episode um but but even then even in 2000 uh paul morris um actually left the University of Hong Kong, just as I was about to complete my doctoral dissertation. And he took me aside several months beforehand and said, you'd better hurry up and complete your thesis. Because if you submit it after I'm gone, um, there are people in the faculty who could basically try to make your life very, very difficult. Um, and, you know, that, 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 <laughs> there are various reasons for him saying that, but certainly one of them uh, related to the sensitivity of my topic. And that was 23 years ago, uh, you know, at a, a time that's now regarded as a sort of golden age of academic freedom for Hong Kong. Uh, 
that golden age of academic freedom is very much now over uh, for Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, academic freedom, uh, I was going to say pretty much wherever we look around Asia is under threat um, to varying degrees. And that applies to Japan as well, I should say. Um, so that is one, I think, very important reason for having a podcast that offers a critical perspective on Asian education. But it also presents us with difficulties uh, in um, conducting that critical discussion, actually, with colleagues around Asia. So, um, yeah, that's another issue we'll come back to. Uh, and, um, you know, somehow we will try to make explicit uh, the difficulties that we face in conducting a critical discussion, you know, as we encounter them. So what are some of the other topics that we think we should discuss um, in this podcast? I mean, you know, what are your top three, Yoko? If you had to name your top three, what topics would you like to see discussed on this podcast? Um, yeah, one of the things uh, is uh, social emotional learning in Asia. Right. Uh, would you like to say very briefly why you think we should discuss the um, trend yeah, so of social and emotional learning? Mm -hmm. Yes, so social emotional learning or SEL is a, like an emerging trend globally. Of course, one, uh, one of the major forces is that uh, like OECD start, you know, they start measuring social emotional skills hmm. and UNESCO's uh, Mahatma Gandhi Institute is, you know, one of the um, major priorities for that institute is to promote, uh, integrate SEL in all education systems. Mm. So there's a global push mm. uh, towards SEL and it's all linked to the rise of neuroscience uh, and uh, also, you know, behavioral sciences. Mm. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I just want us to look at... So Who's like critically looking at this trend in in this region? Basically, uh, you know how certain psychological constructs are interpreted uh, in the Asian context it was like so fascinating. You know, like in Korea and in China, and you know, some some of the SEL constructs are very conveniently uh, appropriated by uh, national experts in Asia to justify uh, the, you know, like sort of pre-existing uh, problematic trends that, you know, that could be uh, not emancipative, but more like oppressive. Absolutely. Just, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's an excellent example of, of something which we must discuss. And actually it, it, it comprises a number of issues. I mean, you mentioned neuroscience you mentioned psychology i mean social and emotional learning i think has often become a a, a a cover for um what we might call the psychologization of education um 
and and the psychologization of of particular areas of education such as sort of civics um uh, so we see this in fact um quite dramatically in the case of hong kong where Kairan is where the subject that used to be the the carrier in the school curriculum for um actually quite a critical approach to uh, citizenship and um uh political issues uh has been basically gutted of its uh, critical elements uh while the uh the government is launching a sort of new blueprint for youth which um focuses on emotions that need to be cultivated amongst young people in hong kong so hope aspiration uh and so forth um and of course these are sentiments you know we can all get on board with hope and aspiration they're wonderful things yes we all need more of that uh but focusing on uh you know the need for young people to cultivate sentiments like that of course places the onus or the responsibility for social change on young people themselves the message it's sending them is that hey these problems we face in our society it's not about us the government it's about you the learners yeah you've got to sort out you know what's in there inside your heads uh and then we'll all be okay how about you Gairan? yeah that's that's a very insightful and incisive observation and there seems to be a lot of interest in that kind of research we had a seminar last week on one of the most popular research in that area. And there have, in the Education University of Hong Kong. I'm in Chinese University of Hong oh, Kong. Oh, sorry, Chinese <laughs> University of Hong Kong. And there was a, a guest speaker from another school. And I, I vividly remember this because his last slide was on why this is so important because OECD is now measuring SEL. That was, <laughs> that was his last slide. I wanted to laugh so loudly, but I, I was the I didn't. Uh, he was talking about another area of research, which is tightly married into SEL. And uh, and there, and we just had a seminar related to that a week before. So I was fresh on that topic. And it's one of the most flawed areas. And as my one of my friends says, you can always hack interventions to make it work. You know? <laughs> So it's one of the very, very popular area, the grit research. You know, and a lot of people here seem to be interested in it because you know uh, we are a very poor and young discipline. So our claim to fame is to say that we have something practical to contribute. And <laughs> That's very interesting. I mean, what you say about the way that the OECD is invoked to sort of legitimate yeah. A particular way of looking at or talking about um, education. Yeah. Um, but of course, the OECD's agenda is not the same as the agenda of the Hong Kong government or the agenda of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, the OECD may, may care very little about um, issues such as national education or national security education, which is, of, of, of course, a big thing right now in Hong Kong and more broadly in China. 
Uh, but these discourses of social and emotional learning can be reinterpreted or deployed uh, by regimes such as that in China to lend more justification to programs of patriotic education, for example. I mean, after all, patriotism is an emotion, isn't it? Yeah, there's a general interest in these kind of topics as a whole. And also, I think it makes people feel good about themselves too, you know. Mm. <laughs> so, but uh, what makes you feel good isn't necessarily true or good for society. Mm. So, and it's also interesting, even amongst uh, younger, early career researchers, as we call ourselves, that uh, there uh, there's so much interest in these kind of things. And it's okay for people to be interested in different things. But uh, as a, as an outsider, it's um, it's amazing to just listen to your conversations about these things, and uh, and just get a general sense of uh, what is the idea of education, what is education for. So yeah, and uh, coming back to our top three topics, one of which would for me would be the the. Fascination with metrics, quantitative metrics, rankings, impact factors. Where does that come from and, and does what does it do from? to educational debate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think where that's... Where does a 20-year-old college student get this idea that that's the only parameter he or she needs to be looking into? Mm. So much so that it's a part of your everyday conversations. That's... <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly a, a very important um, uh, topic to look at and uh, to see whether you know there's anything specifically sort of Asian to say about that or or anything specific about the way in which that phenomenon plays out across Asia. Um, I mean, an issue that's very closely related to metrics or to a, a, a sort of quantitative way of looking at education, perhaps, is um, meritocracy or the, uh, you know, the sort of tyranny of metrics applied to grading individuals um, in particular societies. Uh, and of course, you know, speaking in East Asia, we're speaking in the region that uh, it could be it could be argued invented meritocracy um, in the form of uh, Chinese civil service examinations. But meritocracy, of course, is a is a theme that has you know risen to the forefront of educational debate recently in North America uh, and in sort of the Anglophone scholarly community, but looking at a lot of that literature it's 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 interesting for me to see how little actually it references asia mostly um you know because if you think that um uh you know, meritocracy is um uh distorting education in america for example or is um uh, contributing to a a, a range of social and emotional problems um you know you haven't seen anything um you know if you turn your gaze to korea for example 
or China or even Japan. So, um, you know, that's another issue that I would certainly like to see discussed. Um, and, you know, in, in connection with our focus on the politics of education, uh, we will certainly be discussing the phenomenon of patriotic education um, uh, or the relationship between nationalism and education, uh, in particular Asian societies. And comparatively, I mean, that is a uh, a sort of perennial of educational debate. Um, and, and it's it's something that is is uh, a very prominent feature of the sort of educational landscape right across Asia, I think. So there's that and much more for us to discuss in future episodes of this podcast. Uh, so we're hoping that um, anyone who happens to be listening to this introductory episode will encourage their friends, their neighbours, um, their students, their students' friends and um, family members to listen to future episodes of this uh podcast and and i'd just like to conclude by saying a little bit about the uh organizations that are producing this podcast one of which is the unesco chair on education for peace social justice and global citizenship here at uh kyushu university um uh, I don't know, Yoko, whether I should explain <laughs> what a UNESCO chair is. I mean, that could lead to another rather long and somewhat boring discussion. Right. Yeah. Maybe we can do a episode on, on UNESCO chairs, UNESCO chair and or UNESCO institutes, or you know yes. how UNESCO works. The whole apparatus of UNESCO. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, and and indeed the the significance of UNESCO across Asia, where it. I think oh, yes. more more prestige than yes, and the differences in... between category one and category two centers. Oh my goodness, and... what is a category yes. one UNESCO institute? Yes, everybody yes. needs to know that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, there are about eight hundred, I think, UNESCO chairs around the world in all sorts of scholarly fields, including education. Um, so uh we have one of them here at Kyushu University and this podcast is one of the things that um, uh, we've decided to do under the auspices of the UNESCO chair. The Comparative Education Society of Asia um, is a society that brings together researchers on education across Asia and it's, it's existed now for uh, almost 30 years. Um, the secretariat for it is based also here at Kyushu University in Japan. And we hold uh, conferences every two years. Uh, and our next conference is coming up this November, uh, November the 24th, 25th, I think, in Hiroshima in Japan. So I'd like to encourage everybody to book their place, to register, don't hesitate. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you there. So, well, thanks very much, um, Gairan and Yoko. Um, Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Viceroy. <laughs> we will have a lot of fun. 
right okay and uh we'll see you next time and i our, our next episode will feature uh me in conversation with paul morris uh we'll be discussing um the recent uh situation as regards education in hong kong so great thank you see you next time <laughs>